This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. G'day there, and welcome to yet another episode of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. And if you, like me, have been watching a bit of the cricket over the last week, I'm sure that you've come across quite a few controversial incidents that have occurred in that week. And it's funny that they've all happened in this very short space of time. And I don't know who do we blame. Do we blame technology? Do we blame umpires? Do we blame players? Or is it just the way that cricket has gone and we have to accept that either this is the way it's going to be going forward or we need to take a step back and have a look at all these incidences and decide we need to rectify the rules pretty quickly to get to something that reflects the way that we all want cricket to be administered and umpired. Well, today's program will highlight a few of those incidences that have occurred and, of course, as always, give my thoughts on which way we should be going, which isn't necessarily going to agree with what you may think, but perhaps provides a talking point going forward. So that is today's talking points on the this oh, today's edition, we'll get there eventually, I guess, of thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Let's get right into it, shall we? And let's go back to the first incident that occurred, which happened last week in a BBL match, where Adam Zampa decided he was going to try <laughs> and bring on the Mancad. And uh, as it turned out, of course, he didn't quite go through with it the way that uh, the rule is now written, and so it was not allowed. So anyone who saw the game would have seen Adam Zampa go through his bowling motion, and his arm went per- past the perpendicular in his bowling action, which meant that once he did that, you cannot actually perform a run out at the bowler's end. Uh, and so to, in- to enable yourself to do that run out at that end, you need to stop before your ball, the arm gets to that perpendicular position in your bowling action, and then you can just trim the bales, and if the batter is out of his crease, then he's run out. Uh, now, it's been called a man-cad forever, and there is a, a uh, well, people are trying to stop it being called the man-cad. They should just be called a run out the bowler's end. So I will try to refrain from calling it a man-cad. Uh, and it's fair enough because the, the, the name man-cad has a bad feel about it, and it's always been felt to be the wrong thing to do because it, so to stop calling it a man-cad will perhaps help people understand that it is a legitimate dismissal and it should be allowed. So I will try and refrain from calling it a man-cad from this point on. Now, obviously, if you looked at that particular incident, at the point where Adam Zampa's arm reached the perpendicular, the batter batting backing up had, had left his crease by the barest of margins and it wasn't really... 
him trying to take advantage of running down the wicket a metre or two before Zamba had bowled the ball. And obviously, when it comes to performing a run at the bowler's end, that's what you're trying to stop. Batters taking an unfair advantage. Now, my point to all this continues to be that we need to recalibrate, and it's the batters who need to recalibrate at the non-striker's end. They need to be watching the bowlers deliver the ball and then leaving the crease. It's not up to the bowler to have to warn them for saying that you are taking advantage. And most of the guys who you see who are taking the advantage are not even watching the bowlers bowl the ball. So it is absolutely on them for them getting run out if they do so get run out at the bowler's end. Now, if the batters, you've already seen it. If you look at other games now, you can see where batters are actually standing well behind the crease and they are watching the bowler's bowl, and then the second that the bowler has gotten to that point, they are then taking off as quickly as they can, which is exactly the right way to do it. Now, obviously, we were all brought up, taught to walk in with the bowler, get out on you on the crease, but leave our bat beyond the crease, and drag our bat to the crease, and then as the bowler lets go of the ball, to move our bat out of the crease and already be a yard, at least, out of your crease, and then two steps gives you two yards, by the time the ball reaches the batter. Now, if you do that, then that's all still and good. There's no problem with that at all. But obviously, what batters have tried to do at the top level now is because in T20 cricket, you're trying to get that extra advantage. They're not even watching the bowler bowl the ball. They're just walking with the bowler and just expecting he's going to bowl the ball. And then they're usually outside the crease before the bowler has bowled. Now, this is all on the bowler. Uh, sorry. Let me say that again. This is all on the batter. That's their problem. All they have to do is stay behind the crease until the ball has been delivered, and then they can do whatever they like. So I still believe, and I know there are lots of people out there who don't like this form of dismissal, that they feel that you should get a warning at least. Well, you know what? If I go out there and I get stumped, and I turn around and say, oh, you didn't give me you know, a warning, so I should be okay to just continue batting, do you think that's going to be allowed? It's exactly the same thing. And anyone who says it's not, I'm sorry, you're wrong. It's exactly the same thing. If I get out stumped and then I am turn around and say, well, you didn't warn me, so I didn't know I was out of my crease, so I'll make sure I stay in my crease now. Thanks for the warning. That's not going to happen, is it? So this is exactly the same thing. And it's a new world. You, Everyone has to get used to this being the law and the way it needs to be done. Now... We also had the problem where the coach of the Stars, David Hussey, said, well, even if they'd been, if that had been given out, we as a team would have rescinded the appeal because we don't play like that yet. That is the most ridiculous statement. And I was so glad when Brian Lara called him out on that. And Brian Lara just said, yes, you should be allowed to mancad. It's the batter's problem. If he's out of the crease, you run him out. And by saying, oh, we don't play that way yet, well, when are you going to play that way? Five years' time? Ten years' time? It's as stupid as the England captain saying that he wouldn't ever uh, you know, perform a mancad. Sorry, a run out of the bowler's end. Well, that means that if you're an opposition batsman, just take as much advantage as you like because they're not going to do it. How can you say that you're not going to do it ever? We really need to... This is one law... Everybody needs to get on board with now and just say, 
it's not doing the wrong thing by running someone out of the bowler's end if a batter is trying to take advantage or if they're too stupid to stay in their crease. And it is the same as batting there against a spinner bat or a faster bowler, batting outside your crease and missing the ball and then having your stumps thrown down. You can't turn around and say, oh, you know, I wanted a warning. No one's ever asked for that, so why should you get it at the other end? Now, as I record this, I'm watching the last throws of the third test between Australia and South Africa at the SCG, which has been a bit of a schmozzle, really, for many reasons. And it's amazing how many of uh, these incidences I want to talk about actually come from this game. And indeed, the first one we're going to talk about are the disallowed catches that have been overruled by technology. And... All three of them that have occurred to this point, and let's, you know, with 10 overs to go, let's hope there's no more. Three catches have been taken that appear fair on the field. All have been referred by the umpires, standing umpires, to the third umpire and have given a soft signal of out. And the third umpire, Richard Kettleborough, who is supposedly the best umpire in the world, has overruled all three catches. Now, in doing that, he has used technology overkill he has slowed down every single one of those catches to frame by frame and gone backwards and forwards and looked at different angles that are available and has frozen on this particular frame that apparently shows the fact that the ball at some stage in all three of those was touching the ground now how can you use frame-by-frame stop-motion technology to decide if a ball has been caught fairly or not. It just shows a ridiculous lack of awareness from the umpires as from their playing days. Now, they all played cricket. Kettleborough and the standing umpires all played uh, very high-level cricket and, in Paul Rifle's case, played test cricket. And yet, we have this situation where they seem to have forgotten what it's like to be a player, what it is when you take a catch. And the fact that if you take a catch and you have your hands down on the ground and you take the catch on the ground and then, of course, with the impact of the ball is going to take you through the grass. Now, the grass might be very long at these first-class grounds. I understand that. But it certainly takes it through to the ground. How can you tell if the ball is touching the ground or whether it's just touching the grass at the length it is. Well, you can't, and the technology doesn't show that. It also has a point where the pitch level is much higher, to a certain degree, than the ground level. So the cameras, if you're looking at particular angles, are using the pitch level where that is as as ground zero, and yet... The actual ground where the ball is being taken is a couple of inches at least lower than that. And so that also gives the wrong impression as to whether the ball has touched the ground. Now, I happened to be at the ground on the first day of this test when uh, the, the catch was taken uh, off uh, the South African batsman. Uh, sorry, off, the, off Marnus Labashane by the, by the uh, South Africans at slip. And I was pretty level with the ball when it was taken at slip. And straight away, it just looked like a catch. I just And I said straight away to Josh, my son sitting next to me, that's a great catch. And I just thought that would be it. 
and Manus stood his ground, and then we went through the rigmarole of going up and whatever, and all this kind of stuff. And it is amazing when you think about it that obviously he was given not out, and he played on. Unfortunately for South Africa and for the game, he only made another seven runs before he was actually out. But he said that if there'd been no technology available, he would have walked. He would have walked. So how is that therefore fair for him to stand there and accept the fact that technology he knew was probably going to be in his favour because when we get to technology like that, it always seems to overrule the catch. And then we had this, the same thing happen when Steve Smith took a catch, a great catch at second slip in the first innings of South Africa. Now this one was diving to his right. He's taken a great catch and to be honest, it is 50-50 for me as to whether he then turned his hand and had the ball touching the ground after he'd taken the catch. It looks like he's taken the catch cleanly, and then perhaps his hand's turned over a bit so that it's almost resting on the ground as he's trying to scoop it up completely. Now, in that case, I was okay with the fact it was a 50-50 call. I felt that he took, caught the catch, but the ball had touched the ground after that, so therefore it's not out. But in normal motion, if you had seen that at normal motion, you would have just said, great catch. And if there'd been no technology, the umpires would have given it out and that would have been the end of the story. And then we had the third one, which was today, where Steve Smith has taken a, a catch at first slip and it looked for he knew he'd caught it. He didn't even doubt it this time. The first one on the, the other day, he definitely felt as though that might be 50-50. He wasn't sure. Today, he was absolutely adamant that he'd caught it. And yet Kettleborough still found a way to say that it was not out. Now, this is ridiculous, and somehow they need to stop this occurring. Now, it's not about just taking the umpire's decision. It's not about taking the fielder's word for it. But there has to be some way to avoid having to go through this stop-motion, slow-motion replays to determine if a ball is being caught. Surely, you know what, and I know people, will, there are some out there who will disagree with this, so... It's not a perfect solution, and I'm not suggesting it is. But if you, can, if you, by playing it in a slow motion, not stop motion, but in a slow motion, if you can't tell one way or the other whether the ball has been caught or not, then that's when you go back to the ground and you just take the, you take the, the soft signal from the umpires and you say, that's what they thought, so that's what we're taking. Because the stop motion is never going to say that a catch has been caught. It will always find a way to say... A piece, a millimetre of that ball is touching a millimetre of the ground, so therefore it's not out. And that's not how the laws of cricket were written to be interpreted. All they were written to be interpreted was by umpires on the field seeing it in in far, in you know normal motion at a split second and make that decision. And it's only because there are so many cameras there now that they can try and pick apart an umpire's decision that they have to send up everything upstairs instead of just going to the square leg umpire, did you think he caught it? Yeah, I think he caught it. Well, let's just give it out without sending it upstairs. All right, how about this one? This is the this is the most ridiculous thing that's happened this week in cricket, and there's been some ridiculous things done. Another BBL game between the Heat and the Sixers, and I'm sure everyone has seen it, where... Uh, Jordan Silk has smashed the ball out to long off. 
Michael Noosa has taken a really good catch on the boundary, but he knew he was going over the boundary. So he's thrown the ball up in the air and he's gone over the boundary. Now the ball's kept going over the boundary by a good three metres or so. And yet he has followed it, jumped in the air from behind the boundary and while in the air, taken the ball again and thrown it back in the air again before he hits the ground and then runs to the field of play. And without his feet touching in the field of play, he's again caught the ball, landed in the field of play and the catch is given out. Now... How, how in the name of everything to do with cricket is that allowed? Is that to be a catch? The ball has crossed the boundary. Now, we all know in recent years everything's been roped off. All the grounds are roped off for safety reasons. And we know that there are terrific catches taken by players who take the catch in field or dive over the boundary of the field, catch it and throw it back in. Now, we saw Ashton Agar do this in a one day the other day, uh, before Christmas, sorry, in uh, against England, where he had to dive full length over the boundary, caught the ball, but had to throw it back in because he knew he was going to go down over the boundary and saved four runs. In fact, they only got a single for that when they should have got six. That was an amazing piece of fielding. But there was never any doubt that if he'd let it go or if he'd fallen onto the ground, it was going to be six runs. So how is it possible that you can... Catch the ball in the boundary, throw it in the air, and then you run over the boundary. Now, the last place that Nisa touched before he jumped back in the air again was over the boundary. He was off the field of play. Now, when he jumped up, he certainly wasn't touching the ground, but his last point of contact was from over the boundary. And then he caught the ball, threw it back in, and then he's... You can't be out that way. That's how you're suggesting that if he'd been able to throw it in the air again and he'd, for, he'd lost it again and it had gone over the fence and that if he had jumped over the fence in time and still amongst the spectators thrown the ball in the air or jumped in the air and thrown the ball back in the air again and then jumped the fence and then done that again and then into the field, that that would be out. Now, no one believes that that's out. How are the rules changed to allow that to occur? Because they certainly weren't that way three or four years ago. There is no way in the world you're allowed to have any contact over the boundary and then with the ball again and it not be called four or six, depending on whether the ball had hit the ground in the first place. This was a ridiculous situation. And firstly, if it's in the rules, and I honestly cannot be bothered to go back and read the rules and find out exactly what the letter of the law is, the point being, who allowed that to be changed to that? Because it certainly wasn't that. And secondly, whoever wrote the rule, how did they think that that was fair? It's not. It's stupid. Completely and utterly ridiculous. And now you're going to have kids trying to do that <laughs> in club cricket. And I'll guarantee you we'll see it sometime over Christmas, you know, after Christmas that we're going to have kids in club cricket who are going to say, oh, look, I caught that inside. I've thrown it up. Oh, yeah, right there. I've jumped up there. And that's out. And they're going to point to this and say, oh, that's out. And I guarantee you, no one in the bloody world is going to give that out in club cricket. Unless they're umpiring their own kid in the junior game, which is more likely than anything else, I guess. The point being that in a, you know, in a BBL, which is a, you know, a massive competition worldwide, to have seen something like that happen is ridiculous for cricket. And the very next day, that should have been rubbed out. 
the MCC or whoever still makes the rules of cricket should have come down straight away and said, we've taken that law out of the game and we'll ratify it at the next meeting, but from now on that can't happen. But that hasn't happened and it could still happen again. And if it happens again, we're going to have the same outcry. How have we gotten to the point here in cricket that we have such ridiculous rules or such ridiculous uh, rulings on the rules? If I was Jeff Toovey, I'd probably be saying something like, there's got to be an investigation. The Sydney Test has once again been a disaster with rain and bad light. And, (laughs) of course, uh, former critic Shane Warne uh, often said, well, they've just got to move the Sydney Test to some other time because it rains this time every year. There's been a lot of draws in Sydney. I think someone said that five of the last eight, so now it'll be six of the last nine tests in Sydney, have finished in draws either to do with rain or bad light or poor wickets. So that means that something's got to change. But the point is, I was there again on the first day, so I can certainly talk from personal point of view from the first day. I'm not sure about the second day. On the first day, at the drinks break of the middle session, that's when the umpires decided to take the players off for bad light, even though the lights were on. And to me, as a spectator, I could actually see the ball better than I had for most of the day. The spinners had been operating, it wasn't dangerous, and for some reason, they went off for bad light. Even though they knew the rain was coming, even though they knew that at some stage, rain was going to wipe out the rest of the day. And the rain did come some 50 minutes later. But before that, they could have gotten another half hour of cricket in. Now, I don't know what measurements they use on their light monitors and what decision they come to, and I'm not out there facing the ball. I understand that, and I know that these players are facing deliveries that are much quicker than I ever have, and I know that it's uh, a more important sort of situation than anything I've done. I know when I was a kid, in my first year of first grade back in 1986, I played back at the Kaima Complex. Now, anyone who's played there knows the cliff there. And everyone also knows the kind of summer storms you get back in those days. And I went out there to bat at 5.30 when the summer storm was coming. And it was pitch black looking into the cliff before there was any sight screen down there. It was just black. And Murray Smith from Shell Harbour, who at the time was one of the, the two or three fastest bowlers on the south coast, was coming in and bowling to me and my mate Andy Teredis when we were 16 years old, and scaring the bejesus out of us because we couldn't see the bloody ball. And it didn't matter that we said to the only standing umpire, it's pretty dark, we'd like to, you know, go off. You couldn't ask for the light in those days. It was only the umpires who decided whether it was dark enough or not. And, you know, Warilla, sorry, Shell Harbour were playing. They wanted a result. They weren't going off. So we were out there, and it scared the bejesus out of me. This is all in the days before helmets too, boys and girls. And I can tell you what, it was an eye-opening experience. So I understand that bad light is, at this highest level, uh, is important. But they've got not just the white sightboards there as well, but they've got like 40 rows of seats also whited out with white sheet. So it's not as if they haven't got a decent enough background. And the lights are on. And I understand that the, the red ball seems to become darker in that light but surely if you've got a a white background and a red ball you should be able to see it at least enough to keep playing which brings up the next point 
which is we have a we have pink ball tests now every year in Adelaide. If this had been the same in Adelaide, with you know no rain but just with dark clouds and with the lights on, play wouldn't have stopped because we're using a pink ball, and so there should be no problems because we're playing a day night test, so light doesn't come into it. So if we're using a pink ball at this stage, the game continues. But because we're using a red ball, the game stops. So what does that tell you from a marketing point of view? Obviously, they're going to say, perhaps we should just stop using the red ball and we should start using the pink ball. But then you've got to have different pitch conditions because we don't want the pink ball to deteriorate so quickly so that it becomes as dark as a red ball, so then you can't see it. So that changes the whole aspect of every game that's played. So what's the right thing to do? What are we going to do? I mean, all the purists out there, and I consider myself one of the purists, they don't want a pink ball for every test, but if you're going to the ground and you're paying top dollar to go to the cricket, and guaranteed in Sydney, you are paying top dollar to go to watch cricket, you want to see six hours of cricket. I took my son, Josh, to his first ever day of test cricket. He saw three hours. Now, he loved it, but he should have seen six, six and a half hours because no one ever gets 90 overs in a day. We'll get to that shortly. And that's the point we're at now. Because the lights were on, but it was too dark to play with a red ball, why don't we just use the pink ball? Do we change the balls? Do we, change, do we have old pink balls to bring on that match the number of overs that have been bowled and just say, right, well, it's getting dark. You can have a choice. You can keep using this red ball if you're a batter, or we'll switch to the pink ball and you can use that. Is that going to happen? <laughs> of course it's not. But it's something you've got to think about. If we've got pink ball tests going that will never, ever stop for bad light, it can only stop for rain, or we keep using red balls that will continue to have these problems and we lose so much of the match because of bad light. I don't know. Make your decision. Overrates. They're shit. And test cricket is under a mire and the administrators are not willing to do enough about it to make sure that those who go to watch cricket see enough cricket in the day. In the first two tests, certainly the first test in Brisbane, they used heat as the excuse for only getting in 80 overs in a six and a half hour day. And it's ridiculous. So when you look at on the scoreboard now and they tell you that you're two overs down... Well, they're not calculating that over six, six hours anymore. They're calculating it over six and a half hours. So it's just become an extra half hour that is going to be played every day rather than saying you had to get 90 overs in in six hours. You've got to get 90 overs in in six and a half hours now and you don't get penalised for it. So even when you're two overs or three overs or as it turns out, 10 overs behind in a day as happened in Brisbane for the whole two days of the game, you're missing out on cricket. Now they can say, oh, but there were so many wickets lost or it was too hot, we had to have extra breaks. We don't get that in club cricket. In club cricket, if you don't bowl your 85 overs in a day, when we used to have two-day cricket, you got dock points straight away. And the umpires had to tell you, oh, you're already two overs down after the first hour and they were on your backs. It's So at club cricket, we can lose points straight away, but at test cricket, what, what do you lose? Eventually, you might get fined a little bit of your, you know, your, your money for the match. But it's not 
your overall money you get, your contract money, it's just the match money you're going to get for the match fee. So, and then you're, oh, you're going to lose points going into the World Test Championship. Oh, well, that's a big deal, isn't it? England lost 12 points in the World Test Championship. Lost so many games that it wouldn't have mattered anyway because they couldn't make the final after about the first year. So they, they can bowl as slowly as they want. What's it going to cost them? A bit of cash. But for most of them, they're on so much money, it doesn't matter. So what are we going to do to fix it? The only way to fix it, and it really is the only way to fix this, is for the players themselves to understand that they should be providing that amount of play for the people who are paying to come and see them watch every single test match and every single ODI. They're the ones who are coming and paying the big money that then flows on to them, the 28% of it that flows on to them. So maybe they should kick themselves up the ass and say, look, we're going to make a real big effort to make sure we get our overs in on time so that everyone gets a, a fair chance to watch as much cricket as possible. And that means not just strolling between the wickets and bloody, you know, and then having a talk with the captain at the bowler's mark for two minutes before the over starts and then just wandering down to fine leg and then, oh, yeah, I've got to come up and get my cap. and all. Just do what they do in club cricket. You run between overs. You make sure that if you're fielding at fine leg, then someone else goes back to fine leg for you and you just come up to mid-off. Or if you're on one side of the field at point and you've got someone over at square leg, you don't both cross over every time you've left and a right-handed change. You just stay where you are and field in that position. It's not that hard. If you actually try to get through your overs in time, you will. But then they use tactically because the batsmen are scoring, the batters, sorry, are scoring too quickly. And we just want to slow it down a bit or we want to have a bit of a think or we want to play mind games or whatever it is. Well, that's all fine. But until administrators actually grow a pair of balls and actually make penalties that are going to hurt teams that bowl slowly, then it's up to the players to actually live up to what they're supposed to be doing for the spectators who are paying for their bloody wages. That's probably a long enough rant for today, I suggest. I mean, I could have a rant about umpires refusing to give LBWs that just look like they should be given every day of the week. And then we find out that, oh, their decision was fine because it was, you know, umpires call on any hitting half the stump or it was half a stump, half a ball length outside the line of off stump or... Seriously? Everything is focused towards the batters in this game, in this day and age, and bowlers can't get a damn thing. And LBWs just, you know, always skewed, seems to be skewed towards the batters that the umpires are just refusing to give them unless they are completely and utterly plumb, and then forcing the fooling side to review and then lose a review for something that's, honestly, when you look at it live, you're just thinking... He's out every day of the week. But I said I'd finished my rants today, didn't I? Oh, well. I suppose there's still a few left there for another day. For all of you who've made this far, thank you once again for uh, listening to me ramble on. And uh, I'm sure that some of you agree with some of the things I say. And I'm sure there are people out there who completely and utterly disagree with some of the things I say. But at least it's a talking point And maybe something that you can then either abuse me on social media about or the next time you catch me at a cricket ground somewhere. I'm always available for a talk. Once again, 
Thank you for listening, and I hope that you will come back for the next episode of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.